It's been a while since we started a new book. Everybody must be excited, filling up this place. Well, we are in 1 Samuel tonight. And some people who have been here for a long time know that we did 1 Samuel several years ago. I know it was a long time ago because I can tell in the marks of my Bible from the last time we were here. So it's going to be exciting. Let's go before the Lord in prayer, and then we're going to start with our introduction. Father, we thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. Every week we pray for the same thing, that we would draw closer and closer to you through the reading and teaching of your word. And we pray that that wouldn't change this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> now, First and Second Samuel, traditionally in the Hebrew Bible, are one giant book. They're not split up. That's not done until medieval times when they start splitting things up here, but I want to put them together as one book, as one continual telling of the nation of Israel as they go from the time of the judges uh, to the time of the kings. And we see the lineage and we talk about David, we talk about King Saul, and we talk about the establishment of the kingdom. And we hear these traditional stories that we've all heard about, uh, David and Goliath and running from Saul and Saul unifying the nation and the fights against the Philistines and, and all these incredible events, but they all start with one lady that we're going to see here in the first chapter. And we're going to tie these events in our lives that are seemingly insignificant, and we're going to see how the Lord uses them in, in radical ways. Because so many times we have our focus on the wrong thing, whether it's the building or whether it's a business or finances or, or power or elections or Whatever the influence is, we, we're constantly looking at these things, whereas the Lord is looking at things that are far more, in our mind's eye, insignificant, meaningless, happenstance, just things that we're going through. And sometimes we're focusing on the wrong thing. So let's read verses 1 through 7 together. We're going to get our cast of characters here. Now there was a certain man of Ramathium Zophim, of the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham the son of Elihu, Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zoph, and Ephraimite. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. This man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there, and whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. And so it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked her Therefore, she wept and did not eat. Like you're thinking to yourself, what does this have to do with everything that I just said? You know, King Saul and King David and the coming of the kingdoms and the wars and the prophets and prophet Samuel. What does this all have to do with this family fight that's happening here? Now, I'm not going to focus in on these names. They're hard enough for me to pronounce them. But there is our cast of characters being told to us here. When we talk about this man, he is a descendant of the Levites. So he's a Levite. That's what tribe he comes from. Don't get distracted because it says he's an Ephraimite. That's from the territory, the, the area that he's from, the boundaries of Ephraim, 
not that he's an Ephraimite. Polygamy is a historical fact. It is never proscribed in the Bible. God never says it's a good thing. He never wants us to do it. From the beginning, it has always been one man and one woman from Adam and Eve. But we broken humans, we do whatever we want. And we do all kinds of crazy things. And in the Bible, whenever we see polygamy being described, not postscribed, remember, we talk about that a lot, it's always bad. It never works. Now, that's human nature, our broken nature. We cannot love people equally. We can't do it. Well, you may say, well, I love all my kids equally. Yeah, but you love them differently and it, because they're different people. They're different individuals. Now, there's two sides of this human nature. There's one that says, no, 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 I can't love multiple people. That's not possible. And you're not understanding human nature itself. And then you're also having a very, very hard time, if you think that way, when, you're, when we're talking about homosexuality or we're talking about sexuality outside of the confines of marriage. Because you would say to yourself, well, that's not possible. No, you can love human beings in deeply. Now, let's, let's look at humans in general. I have seen human beings love their pets more than other human beings. I mean, a deep, emotional, caring love. It doesn't mean it's good. I've seen guys love their car like it's a real person. We can love all kinds of people all the time. And we can love all kinds of things all the time. But being the broken human beings that we are with all our faults and failures and passions and desires, we can't love people equally. We can't, or things equally. Now, there's people here nodding because their husband loves their car more than they do. That may be a joke. It may hit home for some people. We see in this relationship, it's totally okay in that society. They can have more than one wife, but what is happening here? Oh, well, I can love both my wives equally, he might have thought. Nope, because not only does he love Hannah more, she is jealous of this fact, and it says here that she is provoking her all the time. Oh, yeah, God doesn't love you because you don't have any kids. I have kids and you don't. Oh, yeah, you're getting your husband's attention, but, and then constantly provoking. And we are seeing that the Bible describes people as they are and families as they are. And we have a lot of families in this fellowship that are wildly different. You know, there's um, stepmoms and stepdads and blended families and blended kids and so for all kinds of reasons. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. And you have different households. The Bible is for you. It's not for the perfect people. It's not for the ones that fit a particular mold. It's for you. Just like God is speaking to Hannah. Now, he doesn't see it yet. Hannah, Hannah doesn't know this yet. But I want you to put yourself in her shoes where year after year after year, her family is going to a place to seek after God. And she's just being tortured. Her sister wife, or whatever we want to call them, is constantly provoking her. Her husband's trying to overcome it by giving her double portions. And year after year after year, nothing is changing. Now, this isn't our only cast of characters because we know here in this portion of Scripture, we also see these priests that are listed. And these guys are not good. It's in verse 3, the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord. Why is it important? Because we're going to find out in the next few chapters that these guys 
are thieves, that they like to be bribed, and they are not seeking after God. Like they are not godly individuals at all. But Elkanah, the husband of two wives, which is disobedient to the Bible, he is faithful every year he's coming to seek after God with his wife. So isn't this strange already? Like if you come to the Bible and it's your first time and you're trying to read these things and getting these stories, these are not the things you're going to write in here. You're not going to start the history of David and Saul and the prophet of Samuel and have this broken home, have the priest not even seeking after God, have the guy with two wives being the one that's actually seeking after the Lord. You're not writing this. Why? Because it's real. This is history. This is a story that's been recorded. And if you're making it up, why would you ever write these things about yourself? Like, I know how my book would be. No one could read it because it would be so egotistically centered. But it, boy, it would be a nice read for me. Now let's continue and see what God does with Hannah. Let's read verses 8 through 14. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? So Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord, and she was in bitterness of her soul. This is important. Bitterness of her soul. And prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. Then she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and do not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall come upon his head. Verse 12. And it happened as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli watched her mouth. Now Hannah spoke in her heart, only her lips moved. But her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, How long will you be drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. I'm going to stop there because I overread just a little bit. Let's go backwards a little bit. What does Elkanah say to his favorite wife, Hannah? Why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? This is total guy talk. Like I, I could see myself saying this to, any per, to my wife or saying this to my kids. Like, aren't, aren't I enough? Aren't I great? Aren't I good enough? Like, why are you even upset? Just stop being upset. But this is so important for us. There is nothing that he can give her that is going to fill what? Verse 10, the bitterness of her soul. There is no human being on the planet, husband, wife, son, daughter, human being. There is no human on the planet that is going to fulfill the deepest portions of your soul that can only come from God, from your creator and your purpose, your purpose for life, who you are. And we can promise all kinds of things to each other, but nobody's going to fill that. And I want to point out again that Hannah is coming year after year with him to the tabernacle, seeking after God. But here she is, and she's talking to him, and she's speaking to him. Year after year, she's not given a child. 
Year after year, she has to hear the sister wife just constantly coming after her. Year after year, she has to listen to her dumb husband try and come up with some saying to make her feel good. Year after year, the priests are still taking bribes. They're still not really after the Lord's heart. They're not great servants. They're bad teachers. We know that Eli tries. This is going to be important later on. He's a seeker, but he's not great. I mean, after all this, she's finally crying out to the Lord, and the priest, the high priest, comes up to her and says she's drunk. What would you do? You would march on out of that place. This, this is tabernacle's not for me. God's not for me. This isn't real. I'm done with this. It's all hypocrisy. It's all a waste. Everything's against me. God doesn't love me. Not Hannah. She is broken. She has bitterness in her soul. And between her and God and her and God alone, this conversation is happening. And this is so important for all of us because all of us have issues that we have to deal with spiritually. Your husband's not going to fix it. Your wife's not going to fix it. Your kids are not going to fix it. It's between you and him. And so she makes God a promise. As she's weeping in anguish and praying, she says, if you don't forgive me, if you give me a son, I will give him to you all the days of his, your, of his life. And as she's making this beautiful promise and this huge commitment, this guy comes up to her and says, you must be drunk. Because she's just mouthing with her words and she's emotional and she's speaking. This is why you should stop coming to your pastor as if your pastor is the image of God. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. You know, we can think all kinds of wrong things. He is dead wrong here. His perception is, I need to get this woman out of this tabernacle, out of this church. She's distracting. She's drunk. When really she's closer to God than she's ever been in her life. And nobody else's perspective matters than God's. And we're going to see what he thinks here shortly. I said earlier, and I, and I mentioned that we look at the wrong things. You know, the priest here, he's going to be thinking about the table of showbread. He's going to be thinking about the offerings and the washings and the cleansings and the animals and the different peace offerings and all those different things. The moving of the furniture, preparation and cleaning. That's all he's going to be thinking about. But ultimately, his job is supposed to be at the table of incense before the Lord in fellowship with God and bringing people closer to him, being a, a servant on that. But that just doesn't happen because we're all human beings. We need to be seeking after the Lord, after a personal relationship with our Creator God. And when we have bitterness in our soul, no religion, no building, no person is going to be able to speak to that need only you and your personal presence with God. Now, whatever issues you're going through, take it up with Him. Whatever trauma or trials or situations, take it up with Him. Please, you're wasting your time. All I can do is introduce you to Him. All I can do is give you keys and give you the book and say, this is where you find Him. This is how I found him. This is how it's worked for me. This is how others have taught me. I'll teach you, and then you go yourself, and you go talk to him. One mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. This is a great reminder for me 
as a teacher, and it should be for anyone else that's an elder or teacher here, you can be dead wrong, 100% dead wrong. This is the high priest of God. He is the leader of the tribe of the Levites. He is the mouthpiece for God to the nation, and he couldn't be more wrong. Couldn't be more wrong, but God knows. So let's read verses 15 through 20. I'm going to reread verse 15 as she's responding back. But Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief I have spoken until now. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition, which you have asked of him. And she said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Then they arose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord and returned and came to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel, saying, Because I have asked for him from the Lord. So we're going to spend some time here. Number one, a little bit of grace here. I mean, this is incredible. I cannot tell you how many times I've had to tell somebody they need to leave or tell somebody they're uh, doing something wrong or give them some criticism or tell them they need to sit down or tell them that they're not going to teach or lead worship or they need to be quiet or they need to do this. And never, ever, ever have they blessed me back and said, oh, no, no problem. No worries. No problem. There's even the most... Even the most gracious people, there's friction and emotion and there's anger. Majority of the time, majority of the time, I'm leaving and I'm never coming back. How dare you? You know who I am? I'm going to go bless some other church with my fellowship, please. But not Hannah. Hannah has just been called a drunk in the tabernacle. And that's not how she responds. Oh, please, don't worry. You know, this is what was happening. Oh, I'm so sorry incredible. I wish I could be this gracious when it comes to criticism or someone that has a wrong perspective of me, but I'm worse than all of you, and we all know it. Now, second, and this is far more important, what changed when Hannah was before the Lord in her circumstances? Did she get a kid? No. Is her sister wife any less mean to her? No. She's still married to the same guy? Yeah. Nothing has changed. Her circumstances have not changed at all. But what does it say? When she was done there, it says in verse 18, so the women went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. But nothing had changed. I want you guys to see an, another important key here at the end of verse 16. Out of the abundance of my complaint and grief, I have spoken until now. You want to talk about the conversation with God? She says, out of the abundance of my complaint and grief. She poured it out. She's just telling the truth where she's at. And in simply speaking to God, does it say that she heard from God? No. Does it say that there was a response? Did she hear a voice? Was there an angel? Did she hear singing? Did she have a great feeling? Did she have her hairs pop up on the back of her neck because of this emotional tingling? No, nothing. 
She simply came to God, spent time, spoke with him, poured out all the grief, the anxiety, the anger. And I want you to know, this has been going on for years. It says that they've been coming for years to the tabernacle. But whatever happened there between her and God, with no circumstances outside changing at all, she went her way and was no longer sad. And what does she do? She comes to God the next morning with her family, and they worship the Lord. They just give out, pour out their praise. They make those sacrifices and offerings. And then it says here that the relations that it takes to have kids takes place, and it says in verse 20, so it came to pass in the process of time that she conceived. So not only did her situation not change, she went back home, they kept trying, now they have a baby. So the whole process is complete. Nothing changed between her and God. I want to point this out because we think that these prayers and these times that we spend before God are meaningless. We think that these emotions that we have are meaningless, these desires that we have, these complaints, this grief, we think all this stuff is meaningless. And yet, what happens? God not only gives her a child, but spoiler alert, it's first and second Samuel. He is the prophet of God that is going to anoint Saul and King David. Samuel, Samuel, her son. This all comes because of one woman with grief and pain in her life pouring out before God. And the men tried to mess it up, and the pastors tried to mess it up, and the church tried to mess it up, and everybody's trying to mess it up, families messing it up. But the Lord says that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Now, we may put that on him and act like he has, but that's not true. And Hannah and her situation can happen to you. Do I think you're going to have birth, uh, give birth to a prophet? No, no, absolutely not. What I am saying is that when you have bitterness in your soul, only God can deal with it. And he will. I'm not going to. I'm probably going to think you're drunk. But there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. You can speak to him yourself. You can grow in that area yourself. And so how beautiful is that? It says her heart was no longer sad in the King James Version. Now let's read verses 21 through 8. 28. Now the man, Elkanah, in all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, Not until the child is weaned, then I will take him, that he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever. So Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only let the Lord establish his word. Then the woman stayed and nursed her son until she had weaned him. Now, when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with three bowls, one ephah of flour, a, sky, a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered a bull and brought the child to Eli. And she said, O oh my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood by you here praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition, which I asked of him. 
Therefore I also have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. So they worshiped the Lord there. Now, to wean a child in that area of time, historically we believe it's like two to three years of age. It's possible she waited a little bit longer, but we're just inferring that. And so the promise to her is, and this is a thing that can traditionally happen at that time period, she's going to raise this child until she no longer needs mom 24 hours a day for all support. And then she gives Samuel to the tabernacle to be raised by the priests. That doesn't mean she no longer sees him ever again. just means that he's wholly dedicated there. Now she brings three bulls. That is a huge offering, ginormous. That's like selling your cars and giving it to the church. And so she comes and she takes this miracle child gift and gives it back to God. That just seems selfish. Why would God do that? Why would God take away the one child? I mean, he's blessing the other wife with multiple kids. She gets one and she gives it to God. The question for all of us is, number one, it proves my point from earlier today. We don't love everyone equally. Our relationships are skewed and our perception in our mindset is tainted by our faults and our failures. But we always let our kids go. All of them. Well, some of you don't let them go, but they're going one way or another. And so the question then becomes, when are we not letting go of them? And who are we giving them to? She's giving them to the tabernacle. She's giving them to the church. She's giving them to God. She's dedicating it to God. Who are we dedicating our kids to? Too many people are dedicating them to themselves. They want to keep them to themselves. They don't want to ever let them go. They don't even want to raise them. They want them dependent on them. And they just, because it's a vital portion of who they are. But what we see is this is an unhealthy way of living and of raising people. Because you're trying to feed that bitterness of the soul with something that is not God. It could be your spouse. It could be, what I talked about earlier, a car, a dog. Something that you're trying to fill that inward need with and you think you own that thing and you think it belongs to you. It doesn't. Some of us have given children up to the Lord because they have been taken. Some of us have given up children to an unfaithful spouse. The family's been broken up. And now you've got to share time. And some of us here, we're old enough. You haven't talked to your kids in years because they just grew up. They had their own kids now, and they gave them up. They have to go their way and that's just life. So the question becomes then, why are we trying to blame God for this when she is making a free decision? She has more freedom now than anybody that, we would, that is criticizing her. And so she dedicates the child to God. Now, this is where we get our tradition because we don't baptize children because we believe that baptism is a free will choice that an adult or a um, person that is making that decision on their own will take. So what we do with our young kids that are in the weaned age is we bring them up here and we dedicate them to God. We pray over them and we say, Lord, you can have your way with this child. And a lot of these parents that were up here and we're praying and they're lying. That's not my job. The question is, what are you doing? Who are you going after? Who are you seeking? Where's the relationship? 
because we have a whole chapter here where every character in it is wrong except for one scorned woman. And this is how God wants to begin the history of the kingdom of Israel. And this is how God wants to bring his prophet Samuel into this broken generation in this culture through one prayer. So again, closing out this evening, what do you think is important? Remember on Sunday morning, Jesus told us that his house should be a house of prayer, not a house of prosperity, not a house of comfort, not a house of fill in the blank. What is prayer? Prayer is communication and talking with God, our creator. And it is far more important to him for us to pour out the anguish and the grief of our soul of our soul than it is for us to be in here criticizing and critiquing each other and who should be doing what in which way. And you see how it all ties together from Genesis to Revelation. The entire Bible is a revelation of God to us, putting us back in order. And so we're going to spend the rest of this evening doing just that. We're going to be praying together. We want to pray loud enough that we can all hear. Unless you want to pray a silent prayer like Hannah. I hope you're not drunk. I probably won't think you are. And we'll see how he leads us this evening. Father, we thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. We pray that you would continue to lead us in prayer. We pray that you would be guiding and directing us to seek after you, to know you more, to have your will accomplished. We praise you for the work that you're doing in all of us. In Jesus' name, amen.